0: evening uh, series that we've been in, in Ecclesiastes. So as I mentioned, if you're not normally able to join us, um, hopefully as we jump into Ecclesiastes uh, 7, this will give you a little snapshot uh, of the book uh, and what the preacher in the middle section here uh, is wanting to bring before us. As we open, I want to ask a question, and that question is, do your limits frustrate you? Are you the kind of person who, when you realize that you can't do something, well, that gets you in a bit of a strop? That maybe uh, gets you upset. You realize you've come up short on something. Or are you someone on the other side who is more or less okay when, real, when you realize you can't do something? Maybe uh, you even realize it gets you out of certain things if you don't have that skill or ability. Or maybe you just are able to see that, yes, you can't do those things, but God has given you gifts in other ways. Well, in today's passage, as we jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 7 together, the preacher is trying to help us to see and learn our limits, our limits here on earth as humans, and then for us to learn to live well in light of them. As we've said before in the evenings, as we've been working through this book together, Ecclesiastes is a book that sits within that category of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature in the Bible, and that wisdom here is what this section is all about. As the preacher examines uh, the whole of life, He's been seeking an answer to that question that we saw right back at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 3, what does man gain by all the work that they do under the sun? And tied to that, last week we saw that he's also seeking an answer to the question, who knows what, it is, what is good for man while he lives the few days here on earth? He's asking that question, how is it that we should live here on earth? And as we've been saying all along, within these questions, the preacher is asking the fundamental question that I think is in all of our hearts, in all of our minds. And that is, what does it mean to be human? And as humans on earth, what is it good for us to do? And the answer to those questions is wisdom. As we plumb into the depths of, of wisdom that the preacher wants to lay before us. And his answer to those questions are offering wisdom, wisdom that we've seen up to this point, wisdom that we should not be investing and live our lives apart from God, because apart from God, all is vanity. We cannot take anything else with us here on earth when we die. And wisdom also, like we saw last week, to know that God is the true giver of joy. God gives joy in himself and in good things, but good things in themselves, they will never satisfy. And this morning in chapter seven, we're gonna see another answer to that same question, what is good for man to do here on earth? And to help us with that, in this morning's passage, the preacher is gonna, above all, help us to learn our limits. That's where we are this morning. We're gonna see three specific limits that we face as humans and then we're going to consider how those limits help us to live well offer us wisdom for life so let's dive into the text this morning and see first of all that learning our limits as humans means we need to remember that death is our destiny glance uh, down with me at the opening four verses there of chapter seven we're not going to read all of them now but follow along with me The preacher opens with this proverb, doesn't he? A wise saying. A good name is better than precious ointment. In some ways, he's picking up on what we saw last week, right? That precious riches and money, well, they might seem important, but actually they aren't. They don't have value. Here, they don't have much value compared to our character Our character is much more valuable. And as we listen to that, we're quite happy with that advice, aren't we? I think all of us might be happy to hear that. And we would do well to hear that, wouldn't we? That our character is more important than precious riches. But the preacher quickly moves on, doesn't he, to this more alarming proverb in the second half of verse 1. That the day of death is better than the day of birth. Well, that proverb doesn't sit so comfortably with us, does it? We all know, don't we, that the day of death brings with it mourning and grief and pain. And the day of birth, well, that brings joy and hope. Just this last week, some really good friends of ours back in London, they had their first baby. Heather and I didn't send condolences to them. We sent messages of congratulations. We rejoiced with them in the great arrival of their daughter. A new life has arrived, full of promise and hope. So what is the preacher getting at here as we look at this proverb? Well, above all, I think he's saying this. If you look with me on to verse 2, that the day of death, and all that brings with it, the mourners, the tears, the grief, Well, that actually has much more to teach us about life, about how to live life, than the day of birth or any other day of festivities. As the preacher says at the end of verse 2, for this, that is the day of death, the day of mourning, is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. To know what is good to do here on earth as humans, we need to learn our limits and remember that death is our destiny. Death is the destiny of every single one of us here this morning, without exception. The preacher continues on in that vein in verses 3 and 4, doesn't he? Writing there in verse 4 that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And the preacher is saying, if we want to live wise lives, not foolish ones, we must learn the lessons that death has to teach us. See, maybe there's some fleeting fun to be had in the house of feasting, in the house of mirth, but there's very little wisdom to be gained there. In fact, more the opposite, right, as wisdom and wise living is kind of forgotten in the festivities. On the other hand, Death, death is the great awakener, isn't it? It makes us stop, and as the preacher loves to do, take a long, hard stare at the realities of life. It makes us realize that that same death that we see in someone else, well, it's coming to us as well. And it's going to leave us, and all of the things that we've worked for here on earth, they're going to be left behind. It's going to leave us empty handed. Just on Thursday there at the St. Patrick's Day event we put on, um, I got uh, chatting to a guy appropriately called Patrick, and um, anyway, he was a really nice guy, Um, he'd grown up, and he'd turned his back on God as he was growing up. He described himself, first of all, as a late teen, as an atheist, and now an agnostic. But then he said this to me, but you know, my mum died just a few weeks back. And it does get you thinking, doesn't it? Yes, I said, it does. And yes, the preacher would say to us this morning, it does. The wise will lay to heart the fact that one day it will be our turn in the coffin. A wise person will remember that death is the destiny of us all. Sure, as we were told last week, we should go to the house of feasting sometimes. And we should genuinely enjoy being there when we are there. But we shouldn't let our heart live in that place. As the preacher writes there in verse 4, our heart should instead regularly, repeatedly take up home in the house of mourning. As many of you will know, my father-in-law, Eric, who was a member here at Great Vic for many, many years... He died very suddenly about four years ago. In reality, that uh, death and the days that followed were some of the deepest moments of pain that I personally have felt and many others that I love. Heather, Stephen, Isabel, the grandkids, and so many of the rest of us would do pretty much anything to have Eric back. We miss him. We miss his non-stop care and concern of others. We miss his non-stop lifestyle of traveling everywhere and anywhere. And we miss his non-stop passion for serving the Lord, making him known. But do you know what? His funeral, in one way, was one of the worst days of my life. But it was also probably one of the most life-transforming days for me. As we sat there together, it made me think of what we are investing our lives in. And all those things, perhaps, that we invest our lives in, but realize that on that day, well, they're really not that significant. See, the day of death, the day of mourning, brings what is important in life to the fore. For example, I now understand even more, if you look with me at verse 5, that it is better to genuinely hear the respond hear and respond to the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. That rebuke and teaching of the wise is what will shape my character, correct my failings, help me to in, keep on pressing on in my faith, and everything else will be left behind. Verse six: There, just as thorns like kinder are burned under a pot, then disappear so is the laughter of fools. They have no depth. There's no meaning there in those things. And that laughter is gone almost as soon as it arrives. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying to us this morning, let death be your teacher. Wise living will let the reality of death shape how you live. Like we see in verse 3, sadness Can actually teach us to have greater gladness, a greater joy in what we have. That's in some ways what we were thinking about last week as well. And as we've been reminded again and again in this book, if you've been with us in the evenings, the reality of death also teaches us to invest our lives in what really matters, not fleeting things like money, possessions, worldly ambition. They're all going to be left behind. We read something similar to this in the New Testament as well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul also points us to the reality of death, but also Christ's victory over death. And in light of all of that, he tells us this. He says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's the tough question for all of us here this morning. When it comes to our funeral, what will people look back on and see that we invested in? What did we do with our lives? Well, they say of you, well, she loved a party. She loved her holidays. He, well, he did everything he could to get that money. Well, did you see where he ended up? He was the CEO of that business. They're all potentially can be, can be good things in their right place, but that, if that sums up our life, all of those things are going to be left behind. See, knowing where we're going to in life, to death, should shape our priorities, shouldn't it? So will you, let that, will you let that shape you this morning, that truth? What is your life invested in right now? And if death came and took you this evening will that investment have been in vain? In some ways, I think this reality of death is then what also shapes the preacher's choice of a whole bunch of proverbs we see in in 7 to 10 as well. If you look with me, he offers us little tidbits of advice here in these proverbs of wise wise living that's flowing out of the reality that we're going to die. Sadly, this morning, we don't have a time to look at that. We've got lots more to cover. It's a long chapter. But here's a challenge for you. Maybe if you've got a moment this week, take one minute, one of those proverbs each day, and just let that proverb shine and reflect into your life. Let the fact that you are going to die and hold that proverb up affect maybe your attitude towards money in that day, towards the value of patience over anger, We want to do that because, as the preacher says in verses 11 to 12, wisdom like this does have genuine value. It is good as an inheritance, it's an advantage to us. If it offers us protection and can even preserve our life as we live in the way that God would have us live. So, in verses 1 to 12, we've seen that death is our destiny. Now, move on and see with me in verses 13 to 18. The second thing that the preacher have us remember and learn, and that we are, that is that we are not in control. God is. See what the preacher uh, says in verses 13 to 14. I don't know, the clicker's not working, so if you don't mind clicking on. He writes uh, in verses 13, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. From these verses, the preacher within Ecclesiastes was have us remember that as humans, the things of this life are ultimately out of our control. Not only that, though, because that could push us into some kind of fatalism, despair, right? Because he's also showing us here that there is somebody in control. Here, I think this is one of the greatest moments of hope in the whole of the book, because he points to us and shows us that God is in control. He's in control of everything in our lives. God is at work. And do you see there? He is at work even in the midst of what seems to us crookedness. God is at work fulfilling his purposes. And his purposes are always for his own glory and for the good of his people. As we're going to see in our third point in just a minute, we won't always be able to understand why things happen in our lives, why things that are painful, frustrating are happening. But we can take comfort and hope that even in the midst of those things, it isn't that God has lost control. God is still at work. He's at work in even seemingly the biggest of crooked things, like Adam was praying for earlier, like what's happening in Ukraine right now. And God is in control of even the smallest of crooked things, seemingly. Things like COVID, which seemed so painful at the beginning, and people died, and now even disrupt our plans day to day, don't they? As Steve sits at home when he should be preaching this morning. Or as my mum this week can't go into her assemblies because two of her people in her her group have tested positive they're taking out the gospel what is going on there well the preacher would have us say that god is still at work we see that time and time again in the bible don't we even when things that seem to be crooked out of shape are happening god is at work joseph sold into slavery God's temple destroyed. God is still at work in those specific cases to save his people from starvation and death and to bring his people to repentance. And of course, as we recognize this reality that we aren't in control but God is, we realize, like the preacher does in verse 14, that we cannot find out anything that will be after us. It puts us in our place, doesn't it? And it puts God in his place. And we see this truth and reality fleshed out then in verse 15, if you look with me. Well the book of Proverbs often draws a straight line between righteousness and long life and prosperity, in verse 15, as the preacher looks at the world, you see he sees the opposite of that. He sees the early death of a righteous person, while a wicked man goes on thriving even in his wickedness. And this is backwards for the preacher. This is what he describes as an enigma, that vanity. And it's an example, isn't it, of where God is at work, even in something that to us seems crooked. And it reminds us that life is never as simple as input one thing, output another. In this case, input righteousness, output a long, healthy life. Why is that? because we, the people inputting that thing, are not in control. God is. And that realization that we can't even guarantee good things in life through righteousness, well, it pushes the preacher to warn us against two types of responses. First, if you look with me at verse 16, that of being over-righteous. Here, I think he's thinking of self righteous. He's going to show us in verse 20, he knows that no one is righteous, so you can't be over-righteous. And that's that self-righteousness that we, can think, that we can slip into as we think about this truth of thinking, well, I did this, and and I did that, and those were good things, and yet look what God has given me in return. Hardly anything good, even pain, suffering, well, I don't deserve that. In this way, we end up pretty much straight out rejecting the fact that God has a plan for our lives that we should accept and align with. And instead, we're essentially saying, well, I actually know better, God. I've put this on for you. I've put this front on for you, as it were. And now you should be giving me something back. And when we stop to look at that kind of life, that kind of attitude, what kind of righteousness is it? It's an attitude that demands things of God. It's not a righteousness at all. And so no wonder the preacher says that there is that is a true way of destroying yourself. Of course, then in verse 17, we see another response. Well, if the evil thrive, well, maybe what's the point in being righteous? I'll just go all the way. I'll just go to wickedness. I'll run there. It doesn't matter anyway. Well, the preacher has pretty short shrift, doesn't he, for that person. He says wickedness really does lead to death, often genuinely before your time. Think of all of those drug warfares that are out there, those gangs, unnecessary violence, foolish people who have got themselves involved with people who are going to cause them trouble. But of course, whether that foolishness leads to an early death or a later death, As we've said already this evening, death is coming for that fool, one way or the other. So that then leads us to the conclusion of the preacher in this little section, in verse 18. And that is that rather than responding in either of those ways, we should come out from both of those ways. That is, we should escape from those ways, leave them behind, and instead be someone who fears God. Do you see there, in verse 18, he says, this is what is Good. This is the wisdom that the preacher has to offer. In light of our limits, in light of the lack of control of our lives, he says to us, recognize that. Recognize you're not in control. God is. In fact, don't just recognize that. Embrace that. See that God is in control. And don't try to manipulate him or anything like that. Instead, just trust him. That trembling, trust. That fear that says, God is above this all, and I can trust that he knows best. As we remember that, as he says in verse 14, that helps us to be joyful in the good days that God gives us. They're a gift to us, but it also helps us to consider and know that he has not abandoned us in the day of adversity. He is right there in the middle of that too, fulfilling all of his purposes, which are for our good. As Paul so powerfully reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So let's live in light of that truth this morning and fear and trust our God who is working in our lives for our good. Right, so that's two of our limits that we've seen this morning. And now let's see our third. And that is that we need to understand that we can't understand everything. To see this, jump over with me to verse 23 of chapter 7. We're going to come back briefly into 19 to 21 in a minute. But look there at verse 23. He sums up, doesn't he, the preacher, his search which he's been conducted by as much wisdom as he could possibly come up with. But with what result? He says to himself in verse 23, I will be wise. But he realizes that being wise was actually far from him. In fact, so far from him that even if he was to dive to the deepest depths of the ocean, he still would not find it. Now that's a pretty big thing to say, isn't it? We might struggle with that, because we're told, aren't we, elsewhere in the Bible, that wisdom is attainable, that God does grant us wisdom. So what's the preacher getting at here? Well, if you look with me then onto verse 25, I think the clue is in there. Do you see, the preacher says in verse 25 that he has turned his heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom, and then he adds this in, and the scheme of things, This is the search which he comes up completely empty on, the search for wisdom and the scheme of things. That word there for scheme of things is the word in the original, heshbon. And it's really an accounting word. It's an accounting word that would say everything is accounted for. We have everything in our right column. Everything is out in front of us. We could say in this context it is the spreadsheet of life completely open in front of us that explains all that is going on. See, that's what the preacher has in some ways been after, hasn't he? Right from the beginning of this book. He has been after the scheme of things. He's seen the difficulties of life, the pain of life, and he's seen that death is coming, and he's been trying to get his head around it. He wants to be able, doesn't he, to nail down those difficulties, those enigmas. But as he says here, he simply hasn't been able to do it. Look with me uh, there to verse 27, because he repeats that same word, scheme of things, heshbon there as well. And this is his summary. He writes, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, this heshbon which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. In the preacher's quest to find the sum of the matter, to, to understand all of the complexities of life, he has come up completely short. And he wants us to realize this morning that we will too. If that is what we were after, as he said back in verse 25, who can find it out? The preacher wants us to understand that we cannot understand everything. And this, I think, is central to the whole of the book. It's great that we're in the middle of chapter 7, jumping into it this morning, if you're just with us, because I think this sums up the book. And there's a hint about that in the center there, because we read that phrase, we maybe skipped over it, or didn't even pay attention, but it says there, says the preacher. This is the only place in the whole of this central section that the preacher is mentioned like this. Otherwise, it's just the preacher's words standing for themselves. And I think those words, says the preacher, is meant to be a little flag for us. A flag waving, saying, here is what the preacher has found in his quest, that we as humans are never going to understand everything. We will never get this heshbon, this scheme of things that he's after. There is only ever one person who will who does who has that kind of wisdom wisdom with a capital w and that is god now before we get too down then on the preacher's quest well if this is all he's come up with then what's been the point notice with me that his his quest hasn't hasn't come up completely empty has it because ironically in his search for this heshbon this complete understanding of everything in life he's actually found Wisdom. Wisdom with a lowercase w. Wisdom in all that we've been thinking about this evening, or this morning, right? Wisdom that we should know that death is our destiny, that we aren't in control, that we can't understand everything. That is true wisdom with, with a little w. See, as humans, we need to understand that we can't understand everything, but we can understand some things even some very significant things. We can, for example, if it's God's will, see and understand that wisdom does have value. If you look back with me to verse 19 there, we see the strength of wisdom given to us. And we can see and understand the truth of verse 20 that no one is righteous. And we can see and understand the wisdom that if those things are true, well, verses 21 and 22... We should be wise in not taking other people's harsh words to us to heart, remembering that we too have spoken harshly of others in the past, and the likelihood is we will do that again. All of that is wisdom, wisdom that the preacher has found in his quest, but it wasn't what he set out for to begin with. As we uh, finish then this morning, let's consider one final bit of wisdom that the preacher leaves us with in chap in this chapter let's let's look over to verse 29 and see the one thing that he says he does find in his search he says there see this alone i found that god made man upright but they have sought out many schemes here in some ways is the preacher's explanation of all that he's seen in life why it's so painful and that is not Not based on God's doing, but based on man's doing. Man has sought out many schemes. And just there, I don't know if you noticed the play on words. The the ESV is trying to pick up the play that's there in the original as well. Because schemes in in the original language is Hishbonot. Heshbon, Hishbonot. See, yes. That the preacher is saying to us, the ultimate problem as we look around the world is that we as humans have turned our backs on God. We've rejected him and we've rejected his heshbon, his plan, and instead we've sought out our own schemes, Hishbonot. We've sought out our own way of doing things. We've rejected God. As humans, we constantly want to reject God and reject our limits, don't we? That's what we've been thinking about this morning. As we said at the beginning, our limits frustrate us. They can, can't they? We struggle against them. But we do that in vain because no one can escape from these limits. Instead, time and time again, as we reject God, hoping to find our own way in life, we actually find ourselves entrapped by foolishness and wickedness. Verse 26 there pictures that for us. If you look back with me to verse 26, we see there what I think is Lady Folly. Lady Folly, who's referred to time and time again in Proverbs. And we see there that she is ready with snares and nets to drag us in as we turn our backs on God. And that leads to that preacher's hyperbolic conclusion there in the second half of verse 28, that his search, well, it only finds one upright man among a thousand and no women at all. Now, the point here is not that in some ways men are better than women. That is not what the preacher is getting at. He's already told us, hasn't he, in verse 20, there is no one righteous. And he could well have just flipped that around. He's found no women. He's found one woman, no men. It's the exaggeration, isn't it? As he looks at the world, there is no one righteous. Righteous. And that's the wise discovery that we can understand and hold on to as we leave this morning. Not only are we limited as humans, but we are also all sinners. That is, in some ways, as we think about it, our greatest limitation as well, isn't it? Because not only does it mean we constantly face a battle to live lives that please God, but also because our sin limits our access to God. As sinners, we are cut off from God, the one who made us upright and who is himself completely upright. And that truth makes the first limitation that we've seen, to, that we've seen this morning even sharper, doesn't it? As we realize that the day of death is coming for us, and it's coming for us as sinners. See, if that's the case for every single human being living under the sun, I think, as he does throughout the book, the preacher is wanting to push us back above the sun, back above the sun to God, to find hope, joy, and purpose in him. And the good news for us this morning is that this is exactly what he is holding out for each of us. We are limited humans. Death is our destiny. We aren't in control. We can't understand everything, But in God's wisdom, wisdom with a capital W, in his heshbon, his scheme of things, he has made a way for us to be right with him. And it was a way, wasn't it, that seemingly involved crooked things. The Son of God dying on a cross to save us but God was at work in that, wasn't he? As we've been thinking about in the book of Mark as well, that was God's plan. And that plan is so that we can be made straight and all things can ultimately be made straight. In God's plan, he doesn't leave us in our scheming against him, but he calls us to himself, even as the sinners that we are through his son. Jesus, of course, going back to verse 15, well, he is the one true, righteous man who perished in his righteousness. And he did that so that we in our unrighteousness could be made right with God, so that death no longer needs to be that final enemy that faces each of us, but instead death is a doorway into eternal life with our Lord, doorway into a life that will no longer see anything crooked, as our sin that has made everything crooked is left completely behind. That is the good news of the gospel, that our unlimited God has transformed our limited lives and given us hope and purpose and meaning. He's given us hope beyond the grave. So as we uh, finish this morning, let's look at our limitations and let's embrace them. Let's not be frustrated by them, because we need to let our limits push us back to God, back to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteous substitute, who transforms all of our weakness, all of our limits, as he makes us righteous along with him, and as he gives us hope in the face of death. Let's pray together as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we truly are limited beings. We've been reminded really powerfully of that this morning. And yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us. You have made yourself known to us. Even as we will never understand fully your ways, Lord, we can see some amazing things that you have done for us. And above all, we can see that you have saved us from our sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the hope that we can have in him in light of death. And Lord, please, would you help us to learn the lessons that the preacher would have us learn. As we go on into our week, would the truths that we are going to die, that we are not in control, but that you are, and that we cannot understand everything, Lord, would that help drive drive us to you more and more this week? And Lord, please, would you grant us wisdom? Wisdom with a lowercase w to know what it is good for us to do in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Please, would it bear fruit in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are um, going to stand and sing our final song now, His mercy is more. Appropriately, in God's plan, this is, a, this is a wonderful one. This was meant to be following Steve's passage, but isn't this great? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That's what the preacher's pushing us to as well. So let's uh, stand and respond to God's word now as we sing our final song. Mm-hmm. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Amen.